A couple of weeks ago, Four Corners ran a story on real estate agents and it wasn't very flattering. While some viewers would have been shocked at what the story revealed, many industry insiders don't think it went far enough. Some industry leaders seek to downplay the behaviour as a province of a rogue minority, while others recognise that some poor practices run rampant. Now, what the story has done is spark a number of conversations and hopefully given cause for our regulators to pay attention to poor real estate practice. If they were to do anything about it, though, what would we recommend? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. For a couple of months before the Four Corners story aired, the jungle drums had been beating in the industry. We were aware that a story was brewing. We knew of some people who'd been interviewed, but we weren't quite sure what the catalyst for the story was. And we'd also heard that the episode was about to hit the airways, but it was a sanitised version of what had been discussed by many due to speculated legal action. Oh, the intrigue. Now, when it finally hit the airways, this is a very brief overview of what it covered. It covered ego-driven agents, kickbacks and disclosures, underquoting, regulation and a lack of enforcement. Buyers agents didn't come out unscathed either. And what has been the industry reaction? Oh, a mixture of embarrassment... Uh, disappointment, defensiveness, and in some cases, belligerence. So we wanted to have a conversation about really what's led to this and I guess what could it become or be the beginnings of. So Chris, you watched it. What were your initial reactions? Well, like you mentioned in the intro there, you know, I knew about this report because I was actually one of the people that uh, was hunted down by a researcher and was tried to get insights out of me on what to focus on. And, um, you know, we'll talk about today things like overquoting. That's you know that was a big part of the st- underquoting. Underquoting. Sorry, <laughs> uh, it's a big, big, it's a big uh, mistake I made there. But I didn't see that as the big issue, and um, and they focus on that a bit too much. What we'll talk about, but you know, there are there are issues with industries that have a low barrier to entry that also have a high financial reward uh, potentially attached to them, and these things don't brew overnight. These are decades of um, you know systemic problems that. Um, that are perpetuated by organizations that, you know, basically own marketplaces and train agents. And then those agents that have been trained, train other agents, et cetera. So lots to talk about today. And uh, this is an attack on real estate agents. This is just a, our view on what was represented and, you know, things that we can do going forward. This is the elephant in the room, for God's sake. If anyone can talk about this, we can talk about this, <laughs> you know, and, and, what you say is absolutely right. Low barrier to entry, potentially high financial rewards. Well, it's a recipe for disaster, really. And it's also a cottage industry. You, you think that um, this we are dealing in residential property with this country's largest asset pool, currently worth $9.3 trillion, according to CoreLogic. It got at the height of 2021, it was close to $10 trillion. Um, and the share market's what, around $2 trillion, you know what I mean? Like the, the total investment uh, funds in superannuation is, is it around three or something? If you add together superannuation, 
commercial property and uh, the share market, they don't even get near the total value of the Australian residential property market. And yet we don't have um, a national oversight of this industry because it's all state-based and territory-based legislation. Um, we don't have, we've got one uh, real estate company that uh, is listed on the stock exchange, that's McGrath. Um, but the reality is it's a very difficult uh, industry to value businesses because really the rent roll is what's valuable, not the sales business. So it just doesn't have the same corporate governance and the sort of systems and the overview that the other industries such as the banking industry have, right? So that therein lies, you know, a, a bunch of causes here. Also remuneration in this industry does not support good behavior. If you work in a business and you're looking at remuneration strategy, you're looking at ways to pay your staff that actually reinforces the behaviors that you want to see in your business. Now, when you're dealing with sales agents, they only get paid a commission when the property sells, if the property sells. So what are they motivated to do? You know, they're obviously motivated to get lots of listings, but they're also, um, they're mo- they've got a short period of time that these vendors are tied up on in an agency agreement. They're motivated to sell that property. The price really doesn't matter. That's secondary. It's great if they can get a good result, but number one for them is to sell it. And so, you know, and we don't, so therefore, how does it weigh in which sales agents are remunerated um, re- or, or reinforce good behaviors? I don't think it does. And the community doesn't necessarily want to pay a fee for service to sales agents. So we all play a part in this. And we also don't hear these sorts of stories about property managers. And I would say that that's partly in, in uh, as a result of the ch- the difference in the ways in which they're remunerated. Then you've got industry idols. Who is put on a pedestal and who do new entrants aspire to be? And, you know, you go to some of these conferences, industry conferences, rah, 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 it's all hype, it's all hype. Um, high GCI, it's called, that's um, gross commission income, right? And that's that's a big metric that's talked about all the time and it leads to huge egos. So you've got a no national oversight, you've got a cottage industry, the potential to earn lots of money and a general lack of appreciation of the risks by our regulators and our legislators. There are two different elements here and we'll talk to that because even the commissioner that was interviewed uh, you know, from the New South Wales Office of Fair Trading you know, she was quoted as basically saying, we welcome more powers. You know, we are limited by what is legislated. So there's two elements there. And, you know, a lot of what I've read, a lot of the legislation, I've read a lot of the regulations, and there's a lot of focus on trust accounts, which is true, that poses a large risk uh, to consumers. But it seems to be where most of the focus goes. And the rest of it is, it's all about, you know, a bit of lipstick on a pig, really. It's it's really, it's just, it's just window dressing. And underquoting, of course, um, which was focused heavily on, and as you said, is not as big a deal. It is a very big deal and it's very widespread. But the problem is when we say it's not as big a deal, it's not the same as Tim McKibben saying it's not a big deal. We're saying, yes, it's widespread, but there's a reason why it's widespread. And that's what the problem is. The actual problem isn't the underquoting. That is a symptom of the problem. And we'll get to that a little bit later in this conversation. So there you go. I'm a bit rolled up. Yeah, I, I can tell, Veronica, there's definitely <laughs> a bit of heat in your voice. I mean, we've done 250-odd episodes, right? We've been doing this for five years. In our first 50 episodes, we did a number of episodes with people like John Cunningham and Matt Hasem and you know, a lot of the you know big agency out there. And 
you know, there was this all this conversation around are agents sales agents or are they trusted advisors and can they move in this direction? And, you know, five years later, um, obviously these are the issues that are still exist. You know, it's not going to change the system by one agent. Um, we wish that was the case, but that's not going to be the case. And so um, this is something that I think that that's the issue. You've got a sales industry where you're matching buyers to properties and it's all about sort of getting the sale through. Um, and it's not an advice industry and it can move more in that direction. It just needs to do it um, collectively because unfortunately, if one's still um, holding it back and being a sales agent and doing underquoting and doing these sales tactics and the vendors go there and then the industry sort of still gets stuck in the in the olden days. So lots to cover. Um, how, where should we kick it off on this episode, Veronica, on, on what you, you saw? Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, very briefly, we did interview John Cunningham. We've interviewed him a few times and we have interviewed him. He, and to fill anybody in who doesn't know who John is, John was the president of the uh, Real Estate Institute in New South Wales for a period of time a few years back. He then went on to um, take on a role within the REIA, so it's the Real Estate Institute of Australia, with the the goal or the, the task to spearhead this um, pathway to professionalism. And the idea being that let's elevate the real estate practitioners, shall we say, to that of a profession, such as valuers or accountants or lawyers. Um, and let's take it seriously. Now, John is the, the ultimate optimist. He, he has never given up, even though he met an enormous amount of resistance. And so I think I'm paraphrasing him to say that roughly around 20% of the industry was keen to take this on board. Now, interestingly enough, when this, this uh, episode aired, I happened to be at a conference, a real estate conference called the Rise Leadership Awakening Conference. Uh, John is a very act, he's on the board of the Rise um, Initiative. And this is actually again, a small subset of real estate practitioners and real estate businesses who fundamentally give a shit. They give a shit beyond um, just making money. This is also A lot of this is around wellness and mental health within the industry, but it also extends to um, just good practice, good being good humans, right? And yet there is a very small take-up of that uh, mantra as well. So that was sort of interesting to be in a group of very like-minded people um, at the time that this was aired, so a lot of very interesting discussions. But I have to say that in the episode, we heard, we, we saw the uh, interviews with one of the commissioners of the uh, New South Wales Office of Fair Trading, and, and I think she was very measured in what she was saying, and I think under, looking at the subtext there were some frustrations. But we in the episode, we heard that after a recent blitz by New South Wales Fair Trading, they went out and blitzed 41 Officers, they found that I think it was 37 of those, which is 90% of those, was non-compliant. Now, they they were given a heads up, and they were still non-compliant at such a high rate. Right. So, what does this show? It shows me that licensees actually don't know how to comply. If they were given a heads up and they knew how to comply, they quickly run in and they check everything. Right. But if they don't know how. They probably think they are compliant because you're in an echo chamber here. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that you can have such a high level of non-compliance. Now, the other thing too is that one of the, they talked about um, underquoting, and we will talk about that in more detail coming up, um, but they also talked about the supervision guidelines. Now, in New South Wales, as the licensee in charge of a business, you do have to have supervision guidelines. It's quite prescriptive from the Office of Fair Trading as to what they need to include. And you have the option of writing your own and making sure you, you comply with legislation, but also understanding your business 
and writing your own so that you've actually employed some thought, engaged some thought in this, and then making sure that you know what's involved in that and what's included in that, and then you implement that and you continue to live that through your business. Now, I chose to write my own, but you can buy them pre-written for about 300 bucks. And so you tick a box, I've got the supervision guidelines, and I would wonder how many of those officers had bought a pre-written supervision guideline so they can tick a box and it's stuck in a shelf somewhere, or metaphorical shelf, you know, probably a digital shelf, and they probably don't even know what's in it. So the very fact that the Office of Fair Trading in New South Wales in particular, and I can speak to that because I'm, I'm a licensed real estate agent in New South Wales, that, and they've just come out with new CPD requirements, for instance, that's continuing professional development requirements. All that is is an opportunity for RTOs to create more money, right? It is actually not a, a true – so, f- for instance, and I've got to, to swat up on this because it literally has just come out last week, where you have to have a, a, a plan, a training plan for everyone in your business, right? Well, all, already there's businesses coming out going, right, well, you can buy this training plan from us. Now, how is that bespoke? How is that really looking at the individuals within your business and, and, and where the, the gaps are in training? And as a buyer's agent, what I'm always on the on the – the blower about is that the uh, authorities say you've got to do this training, but none of it actually relates to buyers agency. So, for, as a buyers agent who wants to do C- or needs to do CPD points, there's nothing there. In fact, in the list of different types of agencies, we don't even get a mention. And this, you know, this episode shone the spotlight on buyers agents as well. And I think this episode showed there's huge area of non-compliance and potential disaster really in the buyer's agent space. And I don't. I think our regulators and our legislators are very slow to understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of issues with things like CPD and you know, and a, a should be right mentality and maybe low fines and agents speaking to other agents. Oh, we don't do any of that. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, I'm safe. I'm part of the herd. No one's doing this. And I think though, if, unless you've got this real high level and some fines are getting that are substantial, they're getting waved around and there's ongoing auditing and, you know, there's no cracks that people can just slide through. I mean, if it's a CPD points, you know, a lot of those things are pretty easy just to write, uh, once a year, just write down a bunch of nonsense. Um, you know, it happens in, in lots of industries. Uh, people just go around and collect points. Is it quality content? Is it quality professional development? Or is it just people getting points to satisfy the regulator or maybe just falsifying it because they know they're never going to get checked. And so I think it's part of becoming a profession. You talk about the legal industry, the CPD is like very, very uh, high, you know, very deep and it's actually done by, you know, expensive courses um, offsite, you know, it costs them thousands and thousands of dollars a year, all documented and very well maintained from my understanding. So that's the sort of level that, you know, you need to take it to if you want to take this seriously. And I, I think it's just saying, oh, now we're doing CPD. I just don't think that's enough. No. So they also, in the episode, there was an example there of a oh, case study of a uh, South Australian buyer of a property. They bought a acreage they thought was eight acres um, from a, an agent who was actually representing themselves. So the agent was selling their own property. Now, when they went to um, do some development on the property, they then got a survey and the survey showed them that it was actually five acres, not eight. Now, that is unconscionable in my view, right? But all because it is discoverable and the agent should know how to discover that um, because that's what we should be learning, right? Now, once again, you can get through a licensing course and not know how to find that information out. That's scary, but it is the truth. 
But all this agent seemed to get was a, a slap on the wrist, right, in, in real terms. Right. Now, apparently they don't have a license anymore, but that was said because of an, a, an administrative reason, not even in relation to this, right? So either that agent didn't know or didn't care, but neither of which was really a valid defence when you are practising as a real estate agent, right? And I absolutely agree with the buyer of that property that agents should be held to a higher standard. However, what buyers need to realise, like it or not, caveat emptor prevails in every state, regardless of whether you've got lots of disclosure, like you've got lots of disclosure in New South Wales and in Victoria, but even that, the land size isn't, you know, as a survey is not a, a prescribed document. In Queensland, you've got even less disclosure. It sort of progressively gets worse from state to territory right down to Queensland being the worst, right? This buyer said, and I'll use, you know, rabbit ears here, that they made the usual checks, right? They made the usual checks as if like, oh, you know, and so therefore it should have, you know, they should be fine. And I can guess what those usual checks were. And what this story does is demonstrate that these are not adequate. Buyers think they know what they should be looking for. And the fact is they don't know. They think the lawyer has looked at a contract. And the fact is that lawyer has not looked at the property's marketing usually and does not do a comparison, right? The fact is that regardless of whether agents should be held to a higher account, regardless of whether this agent has done the wrong thing, this information was discoverable by that buyer had they known what to look for, right? Even without a survey, you can find out what land size is. So had they known what to look for, and this is one of my big bugbears with why two things, why consumers think they can do all this themselves without realizing the need for a very good buyer's agent, but also buyer's agents have been um, spat out of the system without the ability to do this because once again, you can do your license and not learn this stuff. This is alarming, you know, and so it's, it's, it's multifaceted here. Yes, this agent should have known, but I can understand how the agent got to the point of being an agent without knowing. And that is an indictment on our industry that that can happen. And I feel for that buyer, but I also think buyers have to step up and take responsibility for big purchases instead of just thinking, oh, well, I should have been told that. You know, that's actually, you know, so the buyer's not completely off scot-free here and I can be go, oh, poor buyer. And I do, I feel for them. I absolutely do feel for them. However, as I said, that information was discoverable, but that agent and a system in which an agent who doesn't know how to do that can actually operate is mind-blowingly wrong. Yeah. I mean, if the agent was selling their own property or selling a customer's, a vendor's property, the reality is um, misrepresentation happens all the time and it's not good enough, obviously. But I, I said, you know, someone listening to this podcast for a long time would know that we are massive on personal accountability and personal responsibility and that you don't blame the system. You play the game and you play the game the best way you can and you educate yourself. Ultimately, when I heard this story, I thought you could have stopped that by doing a number of things and you shouldn't really have made that mistake. It's, it's hard to be at the end of it saying, oh, I've made this mistake, but people are making mistakes with properties all the time. They're just not going on national television and, and sort of getting upset about it. You know, people are buying in off the plan bu- uh, apartment buildings with defects. They're buying apartments they thought were bigger than they are. They're buying things that they thought were north facing. We had a client who bought a place in Melbourne just recently. Uh, he's actually a staff member of ours and you know th- there was two properties the first one I could I was like that's not north facing so the front face oh okay. no it was completely west facing not even the right arrow, the arrow <laughs> on the floor plan was north facing and I went no 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 that that and I was like shocked 
Then literally about a month later, he was looking at another property and the the exact same thing happened again, right? So the marketing was showing different aspect than it actually was. And we could figure that out just going on Google Maps and looking at a satellite, et cetera. And so you, you really, you have to go into the buyer process thinking, you know, the ultimate paranoid buyer doing all your checks because at the end of the day, it's buyer beware. It's like buying a car. If you buy a car and at the end of it, you figure out it's going to, you know, got no engine in it. Well, that's your fault. The person still sold it to you. And I think that's what you need to be thinking about is with a house or any property you're buying off the plan, et cetera, how do you limit, minimize your risk? Um, and so in this situation, a survey, especially when you're talking eight acres of land, you're buying land. Sure, you want to know exactly how big that land is and not just go off um, someone's word. I mean, even in a suburb, you could very quickly do some checks on that to say, okay, the marketing says 900, but actually it's 820. That's a big difference when I'm doing my cost of what this property is worth. And you could figure that out. So whatever the agent says, whatever's on the documents, do your double checks and check from independent sources because that shouldn't have happened. And while I feel for the buyer, I want to protect future buyers from here is personal accountability, not the agents telling you the right thing. hundred percent. I mean, in your first home buyer guide, Megan and I, we teach our students how to work this stuff out. And I'll tell you what, with a lot of those students, they will know more than some of the sales agents and buyers agents that are out there operating. You know, we were fortunate when I was a sales agent, we, the, the, the agency I worked for, the husband of the owner of that property, he was a lawyer. Uh, sorry, owner of that agency, he's a lawyer. So we actually did get very well trained on a lot of this stuff. And I remember way back, this is a long time ago, right? Agents used to use what RP Data said was the land size, right? But what we learned was that that actually is inaccurate a lot of the time, not just some of the time, a lot of the time. And so we were taught how to look on the deposited plan in a contract for anyone in New South Wales or in Victoria, the deposited plan is a a prescribed document as well, um, and to be able to find out the land size for ourselves, the correct land size. Now, that's without a survey. In Queensland, you have to order that document, but the information exists. And you, if you know what you need to find out, you can order it and get that. And you, uh, South Australia, I have to check my table of disclo- vendor disclosures. I can't remember exactly whether it's a prescribed document there or not. But whether it is or whether it isn't, as I said, these documents exist. They exist and can be downloaded very, very quickly from the, um, the land titles office in every state and territory. And this information is there, Right. That and a myriad of other information, but this is one of those important things. And so, but also as an industry professional, absolutely 100% that agent should have known. But you know what? I've, I, um, it's a story I tell often when I was filming the show, Location, Location, Location Australia. We did an episode up in Byron Bay. We looked at a villa unit for Farmer Dave in an episode there. And in the process, and we, we did actually go to auction, bid on it, but didn't buy it. But in the process of looking at that, we filmed him sitting on the deck and talking about the garden and the, the shower that's there. So when you come in from your surf, you come in and you open your gate, you walk into your garden, have a shower outside. We filmed and discussed this great aspect of this property. When I looked at that that contract, I could see that in the strata plan that that outdoor area was not included. And I'm like, right, well, I'm experienced. I know where to look to see, well, where do I go next? So I look for bylaws. I, I look to see if there's a, an exclusive use rights. I find it. I go, yes, great. Then I look at the diagram in there and realize that only the deck was included, not the garden, not the shower, not the fence, not the gate, none of that. And when I went back to the agent to say, you know what, you're misrepresenting this. You're advertising this incorrectly. 
She said the owner didn't even know that because she bought it like that and that's what she thought. Now, the agent could have done exactly what I did and that's what we used to do as sales agents. We used to check the strata plan and the deposited plan. We would look at that and go, are we advertising exactly what is being exactly what is being sold here? Now, that's something that that agent should have done. It should have been picked up by that previous agent, not by me, you know, but so we got all that changed. We didn't buy it in the end. The buyer that did buy it got the benefit of that. Otherwise, they would have just bought it. The same thing would have been, the baton would have been passed on. So this stuff goes on all the time. This is why we need to be a profession because you need to lift the bar so this stuff doesn't go on. Yeah, I mean, that sort of exclusive use around apartments, etc. Uh, I've got many a stories and, you know, especially in places like the eastern suburbs of Sydney, you know, there's a there's a shed, an old Art Deco building and someone's got you know, exclusive rights, or maybe they think they've got exclusive rights, but there's nothing in the um, strata, etc. Um, you know, a good mate of mine was buying something on um, the, what's the main road going through Wallara down to Edgecliff, and, you know, it looked amazing, huge area, and there was nothing in the strata report. They had all the furniture out there. They thought it was theirs. Um, unfortunately, we stopped them. Uh, but yeah, it, it is prolific, things like that. Um, what were some of the other things? I mean, going on to the next point, I mean, there was a lot of uh, topics or the conversation was around partnerships between buyers agents and real estate agents and um, not just, you know, hey, a professional relationship where, you know, what I could see this person could really help you, targeted campaigns between two organisations to work together. Um, what was your thoughts on all that? Yes, kickbacks, hidden relationships and disclosures. It's a murky, murky world. You know, sales agents sharing open house lists, for example, to buyers agents. I mean, it happens all the time. I get calls from from buyers agents who don't realize I'm a buyers agent and uh, and I'm like, where did you get my name from? Oh, because you inspected this property. And now I know which agent was selling the property that I inspected and I'm thinking, well, I didn't realize you two had a little nice little link to each other. This is very interesting. When I first started the business, um, so now 14 years ago now, we used to get a lot of referrals from sales agents, but we don't pay referral fees. That's something I decided at the outset I wasn't going to do. Um, I really am big on truth and transparency and trust in this industry. And you, so you've got to make a stand on this, right? But as buyer's agent numbers grew, more of them offered referral fees in a way to look, to get leads, right? And, you know, I, I get it. And as long as it's disclosed, that's fine. But the problem is, how is it disclosed, right? So we know that um, these agents are taking kickbacks. We know that they don't need to disclose that to buyers, in New South Wales, I'm talking here, every jurisdiction has their own uh, their own regulations around this and legislation around this. But in New South Wales, there's a massive loophole, right? So we only have to disclose kickbacks, right? We have to disclose whether we take them or don't take them. So basically, there's what's called a Section 47 disclosure document. We have to list out all the people and companies that we might recommend in the course of doing business. And we have to declare whether we get a kickback or not. So this way, everybody has to get this document signed by somebody that signs an agency agreement with you, right? Now, a buyer who comes through an open house and then that agent says, oh, you know, you need a buyer's agent. You should contact so-and-so. They contact The agent then contacts so-and-so and says, I just gave so-and-so your details and so therefore you give me a 20% kickback if they go with you. That's all done sort of off the record. That buyer does not know at that point of time that the sales agent gets a referral fee. That buyer does not know, usually up front before signing an agency agreement with that buyer's agent, because the agency, if the agent is doing their job and getting the buyers to sign that disclosure, you don't have to have that disclosure signed until 
before a purchase. So I could say I'm giving someone a kickback and they come to me, the buyer comes to me referred by another agent. I'm going to give the agent 20% kickback. That's like the industry standard. And I don't have to spree the word of that to that new client, new prospect until just before they buy a property. I go, oh, look, there's this one document I have to get you to sign because this covers off just, you know, when I make referrals, whether we get kickbacks or, you know, we're not going to use that word, are we? Whether whether we have um, a commission disclosure or committal, blah, 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 whatever. If they get it, this signed at all, and I would suggest some don't, they don't have to do it upfront. And so, you know, you can just see that this buyer is already sunk cost. They're already neck deep in this whole relationship by then. They've got a property they want to buy. They're not going to back out of the whole thing now. Okay, I'll sign it. They might not be happy about it, but they'll sign it, you know, and that's assuming it's actually done to the letter of the law. I would suspect there's times when the section 47 is not signed. Um, So you could fix this by making disclosures mandatory at the point of engagement. But there's also a bit of a problem, and this is the, the, it may or may not be a problem, depends on how you look at this. The South Australian agent, one of them, spoke about buyer referrals. So he spoke about, okay, well, if I've got someone comes through my open house and, you know, they're really, uh, they're selling a property in another area, right? Um, And then I send them to another agent, call that agent, give them the heads up that they, you know, they've got a listing to sell that's outside of my area, then They've got to make that disclosure as well, right? But if I'm saying, oh, look, I know that there's a property that you probably would really like and it's it's being listed by another agent and they call up the agent and say, look, I've got this buyer for you, sends them over, and then there's a 20% referral fee. To be honest, I'm not, I, I don't really have a problem with that because that's the agent splitting their own revenue to say, right, well, I'll pay you, you know, thank you for sending that buyer my way, Right. The buyer isn't paying for any additional service in that in that instance, right? Unless that first agent in any way acts for that buyer. If that first agent says, "Oh yeah, I'll go, I'll go and bid for you at auction," yeah, I'm not going to, I won't charge you for it. It's just be a nice guy. If they go and do that, that transgresses into very murky territory. So honestly, I think just we should just make disclosures mandatory at any point. I mean, I don't know how you regulate that. I really don't. But it, but you know, in terms of actually meaning that if any additional service is going to be um, engaged or the person is going to engage in additional service, pay additional money to somebody else over and beyond whatever it is they're buying at that time, then I just think that at the point of signing the agency agreement, those disclosures should be made prior to that, not prior to the purchase of a property and it, or a sale of a property. So in terms of if you've got a sales agent, it's um, agency agreements prior to the sale of a property. So it's prior to that point of either sale or or the transaction, shall we say. So perhaps there needs to be a backup to say and a secondary document perhaps signed at that point in case there's any new referrals in the intervening time. So, uh, you know, yes, sure, this adds to compliance. It adds to more paperwork, all that sort of stuff. They're the very thing that agents hate. But, you know, this is gaping loophole here. And I just think that, um, you know, we've we've got to tighten this up. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, 
access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs, or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's, as long as it's all documented and it's very clear that that you know, agent is getting paid for sending their buyer to another agent or that agent is getting paid for sending your potential listing to another agent, um, and you're fully aware of that and it's disclosed when they're making those sort of introductions, then... I think you'd be fine as a buyer, you'd be fine as a seller because you'd be like, well, thanks to that, you've actually alerted me to a great property that I didn't know about. You're actually giving me a great agent and they're not actually obligated to use that agent, right? But, you know, so they're going to then go make their own decision on whether it's the right agent. But absolutely, I think revenue sharing, like that's okay. I do think there's a bit of an issue though with buyer's agents and real estate agents getting too in bed with each other. Yeah, I 100% agree. Real estate agents also becoming buyer's agents. I think you pick your side of your fence. And I think there's some, there's some big real estate agent companies that have tried in the buyer's agency space. Um, yeah. You know, the big names, um, try to play both sides. I think it's just too murky. I think, you know, you don't really want a big franchise name also doing buyer's agents. There's a, there's too much conflict here, um, in the buyer's eyes. And I think it's the, the buyer really needs to be, and also is there you know, you've got to be thinking other agents, are they going to play nice with these buyers agents, you know, when they know that they're the competitor, you know, they yep. give them preference, which you need preference as a buyers agent. You need complete independence. You need to be able to play agents across each other. And, you know, is there issues with privacy? Are you acting for the vendor's best interest when you're sort of selling it internally within house inside of a real estate agency? So I think, you know, if I was a buyers agency, I would want complete independence from an agent. Yeah, I'd have relationships. But I wouldn't be, you know, trying to go deep into partnerships where they're sending all their buyers and I'm giving them kickbacks or, you know, because you don't want the eight, you don't want um, any agent to know that you're really good with this agent, but you're not good with this. You're just shooting yourself in the, the foot. Your business model is independence um, and being that acting for your buyer. So as soon as you start going too deep on the other side of the transaction, I think you're, 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 you know, it's a, not a great strategy. So um, that's what... I think what's here is, you know, because if you're a buyer in this scenario and you uh, buy through that buyer's agent and they buy through the agency that they've got a partnership with, you've got those doubt. Now, it might be, but you've created all this doubt in the buyer's mind. Um, and that's, I think, an issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this murkiness around who represents who, I know a lot of sales agencies have a sort of an arrogance around, why would you need a buyer's agent? We're here to do that. And, and it's like, no, you don't even get, you don't even get what independent representation looks like. But then you've got the other type of big names that, you know, have tried to set up their buyer's agency arms with limited success. And I think part of that is because the consumer looks at it and says, hang on a minute, I, I don't feel really good about this. I was approached by one some years ago to see if I would become one of them. And, and I was like, well, I get the obvious synergy here. You've got this big database of active buyers and I'd love access to that, of course. But the fact is that we have to, we have to look bigger than that. We have to look bigger than just sort of this obvious, uh, lead gen, um, approach. And I, and I do have a, I do have a, a, a philosophical problem, an ethical problem really with human beings being treated like leads, you know, um, 
and the, and particularly in the property space where it, the consequences of getting it wrong and being misled and not getting good advice is just so huge. And the only person that bears that consequence, as we saw in this, really this um, episode, is the buyer, ultimately. The end That is the person that that ultimately carries a can for this because there seems to be no um, real tight regulation and no no penalties, really. So let's sort of get into, I guess, what what was seen to be one of the meatiest um, parts of the episode, which, you know, the underquoting thing, it's it's a bit of trident, it's, you know... this is something that obviously is is trotted out regularly, and I agree that underquoting is widespread. So I'm not trying to minimise it as a problem, but I don't think it's the biggest problem. I think it's a symptom, as I said earlier, of the real problem, which is poor legislation and poor enforcement. Now, the New South Wales Commissioner said that they focused on underquoting in 2021, and they found, to quote her, quite prevalent underquoting. Two years later, it's still rife. And it's been rife for decades, right, with the Blitz team leader saying that there were, to quote, quite prominent issues with underquoting. Now, they talk about zero tolerance on one hand and on the other, how they're educating the agents and requesting that they step up and do the right thing. So I ask, what is the incentive here? There's a much bigger incentive for agents to underquote than there is to do the right thing. And the thing is that this led just the regulator in New South Wales anyway is a toothless tiger, right? So the commissioner said that the agents needed to consider their reputation, but the fact is nobody cares. Buyers will buy when they find a property they like, regardless of who sells it. Very few buyers will go, I'm never buying through that agent. I've heard it said, but it is a minor, minor, minor um, proportion of the market that will do that. And vendors will list with who they think will get them the best price. And they are the underquoters. The underquote, the, the process of underquoting, which I'll go through in a moment, is what delivers the highest price. So we're all playing a part in this, but I think we've got to get this very, very clear that our whole system rewards the people that underquote, and that goes right back to the legislation, you know, and we have very naive legislation when it comes to underquoting in this country. I just think it's naive because it basically it doesn't talk to the real incentives for behaviour, um, and the penalties are just frankly not enough. Yeah, it's such a um, you know if you're selling similar properties all the time, which no one ever does, right? And you are consistently uh, selling a, a property that's easy to value, and you're just constantly undervaluing it, right? Uh, underquoting it. Well, I can think you see an issue here, right? But it's not that not every property is easy to value, and not every property's got great comparables in the last three months, etc. And so. You know, and the market's moving quite dramatically within sales campaigns. And, um, you know, and yes, there is an underquoting because there's benefits to doing that. But sometimes when the, the numbers blow out, it's also a bit of luck. You know, it's maybe hammer and tong of two people, et cetera. So mm. I think, you know, there's there's lots of issues here. It's not just as simple as the agent knew that that would go for $3 million and they quoted 2.1. They just, there was, you know, they might have thought it would go for 2.3 or 2.4 on a good day, but there was just a competition and it went crazy, et cetera. Um, but that's not always the case. I mean, I'll, in an ideal world, you would love to have a, a range that an agent could underquote by, you know, an average over maybe a full year that you could you could track it or something. And then you could you know, really see the people are doing the 20 or 30% consistently and really try to stamp that out because there is a bit of pain with these buyers, you know, because if they do get this belief that underquoting is, you know, maybe 10 to 15% regularly, um, then they're okay with that. They're in the market. They, they get that knowledge very quickly. 
it's just when you get these people that are, you know, aiming for a lot more under quoting and they get the sniff and they get excited and they just basically burn time and burn costs going in and out of the market, getting frustrated uh, and then ultimately buying a property out of desperation. Um, and so I think that's what it is. It really just eats buyers down who don't know how to play the game, unfortunately, and don't know how to value properties and, um, and then just believe what the agent's doing and then they just go through this cycle. So, yeah, I mean, what's, what's the best way you think we should attack this, Veronica? Well, they refer to the conditioning process in this and underquoting and conditioning of vendors is, is tightly inter, interwoven, right? So the conditioning process is basically when uh, an agent goes in and pitches a high price to get the property um, to flatter the vendor into, into listing with them because I believe in your property and I can get more than everybody else. And then they go through the process of underquoting to the market so that they can build up as much competition as possible and hopefully get somewhere near what they've, they've um, put on the agency agreement. But in the meantime, they're banging the agent, sorry, batting the vendor over the head and trying to get them to lower their expectations and hopefully they can meet somewhere in the middle. That, that's the old-fashioned conditioning process. Now, I think it's become a bit more sophisticated since then, right? Um, and so, that, yeah, that's all, all the dinosaurs in the industry. That's how they used to do it, right? And to be honest, that started getting weeded out um, even even around the time when I got into the industry. That 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 was starting to be looked upon as not really very sophisticated way of selling property. So um, the REIQ CEO said that you know market appraisals need to be substantiated, right? And so what that means is that when an agent goes into a property to appraise that property and put forward a pitch to win that business, they're meant to be doing a market appraisal. And that is where they go away and they they come back with their researched opinion, their educated opinion as to what that property should sell for. And there's grace involved in pretty much all the legislation that gives them sort of this 10% range, right? To say that you, in New South Wales, for example, the legislation is that if you say you say it's worth 1 million to 1.1, that, 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 that I guess that range on top of the bottom end of that cannot exceed 10%. So if I'm going to quote... If I think it's worth five million, I could say it's worth five to five and a half million. You know, one point two to one point three two. That that would be the sort of thing that goes on an agency agreement. But you meant to substantiate where that number came from. Now we do a fair bit of vendor advisory work in my business, and one of the the, the things that we go through in that vendor advisory process is to check how substantiable that appraisal number is. And I am actually mortified at the number of agents, and these are good agents because these are people we're recommending and we know that they're good agents, but even as such a small percentage of those do a proper market appraisal. Some don't even try. Like they just pluck a figure out of the air. My gut feeling is they don't substantiate it at all. Now that's in New South Wales. In Victoria, an agent has to provide a statement of information, which is an attempt to substantiate the price expectation you're giving to the vendor right? And that's great too, except it can be manipulated, right? It can be manipulated because an agent can use a sale that's a year old or in a different suburb or an inferior property, right? So the, all this is about agents looking for ways to get around the legislation so that they can underquote. And so I have also spoken to agents off the record, of course, but very often I've had these conversations. So this is not a rare occurrence where they say they sit down with their owner and they say, look, I really think it's going to probably get about X, but we're not going to get X if we quote X. We're going to have to quote X minus X percentage or Y percentage in order to be able to build the competition to get you the price you're after. 
So I can't put X on the agency agreement because that's more than 10% over where we need to quote it to get to that level. And they explain that. It's all off the record. And then the agency agreement is written up with a different price on it. And that allows the agent to quote a lower number. Now, throughout that process, they, there's legislation. And as I said, every state and territory is different. There's certain elements in there that says, right, if an offer is received during the period of, of marketing that property and it's rejected by the owner, you can no longer quote less than that, that amount of money. Now, I've seen ways in which agents have, have gone to bent themselves backwards getting around that one. They don't get the offer in writing. Don't give it to me. No, it won't be, it won't be accepted. And yet it's been made verbally and they go, oh, no, no, don't give it to me because it won't be accepted. And then they keep their, their, um, they're quoting at the low level. I've, I've seen situations where they've had a written offer and then the vendor is, or the agents come back saying, oh no, the vendor said to me that they're not accepting offers. So therefore I'm not accepting that. I'm rejecting it as an, I'm not allowed to pass it on to the vendor because they've told me they don't want to see offers. And so then they don't adjust their quoting. So there's all sorts of this sort of behavior that goes on. And it is it, because you know, the legislation, when I say the legislation is naive, it's because it, it they fail to understand the lengths that agents will go to to get around it. And because it is not enforced, right, good agents are therefore forced to underquote because they got to play the game, right, or they risk having no bidders at their auctions. And they are they will say to me, they will tell me their frustration with having to do this, but to not do it would not be looking after their vendor's best interest. It would not be getting the maximum amount of buyers through that property. It would not be getting the maximum amount of bidders at the auction. So I get this. And as a buyer's agent, as someone who's not caught up in this practice, uh, well, as a, a, a you know an observer, and obviously our clients get caught up, but we educate our clients so they're not naive to this. But I can speak to this because I know exactly what goes on. This is what our legislators don't understand. Yeah, and I think there's obviously the underquoting side of it, but it's also the vendor has to play a bit of part of this. Yes. They have a conversation initially with the agent. You know, they get the three agents through and just human psychology, you know, yep. they all want people to tell them how amazing their property is and how much it's worth. And they get the three agents through and one says 2 million, one says 1.8 and one says 1.7. Um, you know, no matter how good the quality of the agent is, they're naturally thinking, I'm going to go with the $2 million person. Yeah. Right. Because they think that they love my property more. They think it's worth more than the other agent. Uh, yeah. And so the agents, unfortunately, all have to try to buy the listing. They all say it in different ways. You know, if it's the, it's the seller that says they want it straight, well, they don't really want it straight. They actually no. they want the, 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 whatever, I don't know what the right, nice way to say this is, you know, they they want to be fed bullshit. Yeah, exactly. That's probably the best way to say it. Uh, ultimately, the seller will go with the agent and they think it's going to get the highest price and they think the person who says they're going to get the highest price. It's like when they go to see a fund manager or a financial advisor. They go to a financial advisor. One says they can get 7% returns. One says 6 One says 5 Well, the five is probably maybe they're in the realistic one and being truthful, but they go with the person saying they can get 7 because they think they can do it. And it's a confidence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think the vendor needs to be a bit smarter than this, do their own research and maybe ask better questions. I don't, um, you know, what are the, why do you think it's worth it? What's some real evidence that you can prove? Like why, what else is sold? Like, you know, what sold recently? Why is my property better than that? Yeah. And it go, it goes back to, it goes back to the fact that so few of these agents, and I'm talking at all price levels we've been dealing with here, 
so few of them are actually doing that appraisal. So they're not even providing the evidence to substantiate, you know, higher or lower. They're just not doing it. And it's one of the things we call for. We go, we want you to substantiate why you think that is the case. And, you know, and so so this goes, so this underquoting is, oh, it's terrible and these people are bastards and all the rest of it. It's like we will play a part. The buyer who just assumes to add 10 or 20% to whatever guide and says, oh, I'm not going to go for that property because it's too expensive without actually understanding themselves different, you know, different market prices and all the rest of it, that buyer that makes that assumption and then doesn't effectively reward the agent is trying to quote accurately, they play a part in this. You know, the vendor that goes to be flattered who says, and I had it when I was a sales agent, I have people say to me, no, I don't want you to bullshit me. I don't want you to bullshit me. And I go, well, I won't because it's not my nature. And I sit down with them afterwards having not bullshitted them, having given them substantial evidence to substantiate my my recommendation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, no, I'm going with them because they, they believe in my property more than you do. You know, oh, God, you told me not to bullshit you and yet you're going to go with the agent that's bullshitted you. You know, it's incredibly frustrating. Um you know, and this one of the other South, well, one of the South Australian agents said all this, and I love his 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 wording. He said nuanced and whispered. That's what this is all nuanced and whispered, right? Because it is. It's all under the. It's all under the radar. It's like the regulator. It's like they don't even realise this. This sort of conversations are going on. So I guess what could fix underquoting? Well, radical transparency. You know, and so like for instance, I often ask an agent, well, what'd you put in the agency agreement? You know, the statement of, of information, for instance, in Victoria isn't, is an, I guess it's an exercise in radical transparency, but then can it be interrogated? You know, so look, that's a little bit step closer. It can still be manipulated, but it's still a step closer than what we have in New South Wales, where there's no transparency whatsoever um, of what the vendor was told. And I do think the legislation in South Australia is very good where it ties vendors into this by saying that the reserve cannot be more than 10% above the guide price. So I think too, I think also that this looseness of definition of what constitutes an offer, that needs to be tightened up, you know, so that the agent, it's like irrefutable. Whether the vendor said, don't give me offers or not, it's irrefutable if you have an offer that it that pricing, that the quote must be increased. And I'm sure that is the legislation just quietly. However, it's not enforced. So they're just looking for ways around it. I remember going and and the, look, the penalties need to be bigger. I'm sorry, but tw- $2,200 um, to find an agent that could be earning more than a million dollars, it's just, uh, honestly, it's, it's just a drop in a bucket. And I've heard agents say to me, it's just a cost of doing business. So you know, baked into the into the cost or something is how it was referred to in the episode. I know agents that review it view it as a cost of doing business. It's not taken seriously. The in order to for fair trading to actually take an agent to court, there's a lot of work that goes into that, and they don't have the resources for it. So they'd rather just slap out a whole handful of these twenty two hundred fines, which require no uh, investigation, and but it doesn't actually do any job of deterrent, and so. I think, you know, what could fix underquoting? I just think a healthy dose of real realism and understanding what goes on. When the REI New South Wales Theatre Industry Roadshow uh, 2016, when the, the laws, the underquoting laws changed in New South Wales, I was just horrified at every, 
there was a, a big room full of agents, lots of round tables of agents. Nearly every single table had somebody stand up and really come up with a way that they were trying to get around the legislation. And that was the predominant mood in the room. How can we work around? How can we continue doing things the way we've always done them? Was basically the way they look at it. So that sort of gives a huge clue as to what's going to happen when this legislation hits, right? And there's silly things in the legislation, like they have to keep a documentation of every every person they talk to and every guide they give out. I mean, that's just dumb. You know, like someone's driving in a car and they get called by a, a buyer and says, oh, what are you quoting on X property? And they're literally meant to pull over and write a little record down to say that they spoke to this this buyer at this time. This is what they quoted. I mean, there are... I mean, that's what I mean by naivety here. This onerous, and that is onerous. That's ridiculous. And, and you know, but it doesn't solve the problem. Your point there around sort of the, uh, the group of agents trying to get around legislation, um, and maybe that would be facilitated by the company uh, themselves. I think that mentality, that, that culture of let's getting around um, legislation, but also the culture towards sale. I mean, that's what was, you know, evident in the episode as well is that the pedestal of the people that are seen as that the big sellers in the industry and that Wolf of Wall Street boiler room. Yeah. Let's get the sellers, get the high price like that. Rah, rah. Look, I think unfortunately that is something I wish would change. I think that it really doesn't gel well. And I think maybe some buyer sellers will sell through those people because they, the confidence like those mm. you spoke about, but you know, really, I think it's just not inauthentic and it's just treating buyers as buyers, not as people. And um, these are massive decisions. You need to change your mentality and your ethics and um, your values. And that would have to change at a top down level. Um, and it would have to be de uh, delivered on a daily basis and constantly yep. trained. And my worry is that, you know, you've got Goliaths in the industry that have trained whole groups of sales agencies. So then to flip on their head and go, actually, Let's become a trusted advisor. Let's actually forgetting about the this the dollars, and let's actually focus on the client, um, you know, experience and the, the value add that we can add as agents in more than price. Uh, and I think that's a whole other shift that I wish it could make. That's a shift I wish the broking industries. I think it's on that direction. Um, mm. I think the financial advice industry's done that flip. Um, you know, a lot of old dead wood's gone, and a lot of the new advisors, a, a, a new breed, absolutely. Um, I, I wish the agency and I hope the buyer's agency industry as well take those um, direction. Well, the problem with that, right, um, is that, you know, the REI C, uh, New South Wales CEO said, you know, a, a better approach rather than, you know, greater powers for, I mean, think about the Banking Royal Commission and what changed there, right? And in the financial space, you've got higher um, education standard, you've got much higher compliance, you, you've had a lot of fines, a lot, a lot of massive consequences for people doing the wrong thing over many, many years. Um, so there's been a massive shake out of the industry and it probably hasn't weeded out everything, every bad egg, but you know, it's basically shone a huge spotlight on that. Um, whereas in our space, in the, in the real estate space, um, you know, the commissioner sort of said the regulator would welcome greater powers. And as I mentioned before, the, the REI New South Wales CEO said that, you know, a, oh, a better approach rather than penalizing, um, you know, carrying around with a big stick would be to work with the industry to bring the level of compliance up to where the regulator requires to quote. Now, but it seems that this approach has been what has been done and it has failed spectacularly, right? Um, you know, as one agent speaking out said, agents look for a loophole, as I was talking about there, and then drive a truck through it. And the problem is, though, when you look at real estate, it's not like it's just the dinosaurs that are carrying on like this. 
It's the new entrance as well. And I think that's what was loud and clear in this episode. This is this is not like we've got a new breed of a different level of ethic and a, a different level of respect for the consumers that we deal with and the importance of these transactions. It's just like that because of what's been held up and, and rewarded and regarded and put on a pedestal in this industry, the new entrants come in aspiring to continue to do the same thing. And I think that's very, very scary. You know, I think some people are calling for a real estate royal commission. I'm not sure it could ever happen because it's not legislated nationally. I, I, I don't know if that's a um, something that would preclude it or not. But fundamentally, however, this episode should be a wake-up call. But what worries me is, will it be? Well, I'm worried we'll be, we'll be doing this another 250 episodes. That's the plan. So we'll get into 500 episodes, maybe another five years down the line. And um, have we got further to that or not, um, time will tell. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.